Well, hey guys, we are studying the book of 1 Corinthians together, doing a verse-by-verse uh, study of this letter uh, from the Apostle Paul. Uh, this uh, book could be titled uh, Christianity for Real People. Uh, it's You see, it's, it's helpful and it's encouraging to study this book because it was written to ordinary people just like us. Like ordinary strugglers and ordinary failures just like us. People who were in a similar context of our own, facing the same kind of struggles, both internal and external, that we all face. Because guys, the truth is that all of us struggle. If you just look around this room, you need to understand that uh, people sitting around you have issues. And the people sitting around them have issues. Like all of us have issues. All of us have struggles, right? And uh, we all have issues with insecurity or uh, identity or idolatry or immorality or pride. And if that doesn't sound like you, that's because your greatest struggle is probably with self-awareness. And so you can write that down in the margin of your notes and know what you need to pray about. Like all of us struggle. We all struggle with sin. And if you don't struggle with sin, it's because you give in every time. I mean, that's how it works. It's a struggle for the believer because we really do want to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. But we mess up and we fail. Like we miss our own standards and certainly we miss God's standards. And so we all struggle. And that's why this is a great book to study because it was written to fellow strugglers. Written to fellow failures. Written to people who have gotten off course and need help getting back on track. Like it shows us exactly how we make a mess of our lives and of our relationships. And it shows us exactly how we can live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. And so as we study this book, I hope that you're encouraged by the fact that your struggles are not unique to you or even to our church or our region or our era or our culture. Like even a church founded by the Apostle Paul himself and ministered in uh, by people like Priscilla and Aquila and uh, Timothy and Silas and Apollos and Peter, even a church like that had similar struggles to our own like we saw last week in the title of the message, Welcome to the Dumpster Fire. Like that's what you find in the book of Corinth. And so if you think that church, if your view of church is that it's a gathering of people who are kind of the good people, like if you think of church as kind of the cream of the crop of any culture, these are the folks who don't have it, who don't struggle, these are the ones who have it all together, then you really don't understand the nature of church. Like you don't understand human depravity, you don't even understand the gospel. Okay? And so, in fact, in this passage we're going to look at in just a minute that I'm about to read, the Apostle Paul introduces an area of struggle that this church has that we have as a church. And this is an area of struggle that he will return to again and again and again because it is so prevalent and it makes it shows itself in multiple ways throughout this letter. And so the struggle relates to unity in the church. And the presenting problem that we're going to read about 
kind of shows itself in cliques and in conflicts. And so uh, if you were also in the category of people who think that the church is where people just naturally get along and just love each other and never struggle with conflict, you're new to church and it's good to have you this morning. So for the rest of us, why don't we stand together and read God's word? I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 10. I'm sorry, 1, 10 through 17. Paul writes this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and have the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Or, I follow Apollos. Or, I follow Cephas. Or, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So Paul begins in his first exhortation to the church of Corinth by kind of giving them a vision of how things are supposed to be in the church, how things are supposed to function, what it's supposed to look like. And here's the vision. We are one church. There's not four churches in Corinth. There is one church. One church united under Christ. The church of Corinth was behaving, guys, like a dysfunctional family. And I know a little bit about dysfunctional families having been raised in one. Like if you, like me, were raised in a dysfunctional family, we have a hard time recognizing what normal looks like. And so Paul gives a picture of what the normal church is supposed to look like from the perspective of Christ Himself. It's like he's saying, hey, listen, I know this is all new to you. And I know that you've picked up a lot of bad habits along the way of how you relate to each other and how you break into cliques and all that kind of stuff. But that's not how we do church. I mean, that's how the world acts. That's not how we act. That's how they behave. That's not how we behave. That's not how you do church. Like he wanted them to understand that there is a high cost for disunity in the church. There's a high cost for treating each other in a way that wasn't loving uh, within the body of Christ. In fact, Jesus Himself said that if the world looks on and sees us not loving each other, they will assume either that we're not for real, like, you know, if we love one another, all the world will know that we are His disciples. And so if we're not loving one another, they will look on and assume that either we're not for real or that, even worse, Jesus isn't for real. Like in John 17, He said, listen, let them love one another so the world will know that you have sent Me. And so by the way we treat each other, the world is supposed to look on and knows, know that we're legit and that Jesus is. 
But if we're not loving each other, if we're not living in unity, if we're bickering and forming factions, that won't happen. And so Paul writes to them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. He, he doesn't start with a demand. He could. He doesn't command them. He speaks to them as family. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so guys, I want you to understand, and this is so key, the first thing we see is that if you want to move in any kind of relational conflict, if you want to move to unity from conflict, you need to come under the same authority. He says, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here is speaking as an apostle. An apostle in the New Testament sense was someone who was like an eyewitness to Christ in His resurrection. And they were also somebody who was appointed, commissioned by Jesus to speak for Jesus. Like it's a big deal. Like if you've ever been a part of a church where the title of the leader is Apostle, run. Right? Like these are a unique group of people. And here you have one. Paul coming in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the words he's writing are the words that are coming from Jesus Himself. You see, Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of every church unless that church has ceased being a church. And so the first step in becoming one church, the first step in Christian unity, whether it's in a church or maybe even in a marriage or a family, the first step is to come under the same authority. Guys, this is so important. Like I've told people for years that the way Amy and I stay unified in our marriage is though even though I am the head of the house, I have a head. And it's not me. It's Christ. Like I am a man under authority and Jesus can always trump me. The Word of God always trumps me. It wins. It's the authority in our household and it's the authority in our church. It should be the authority in your family. The way we have true Christian unity is that we yield together, submit together to that authority, whether in the family or in the church. Like the first step in dealing with a conflict, not sweeping it under the rug, is agreeing to submit to the Word of God as our authority. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Literally, that you speak the same. Like this is a word that means harmony. It kind of carries the idea of stop talking over each other. Like shut up for a minute and listen. Like that you all agree and that there be no divisions. The word translated divisions in the Greek is the word schisma from which we translate in English words like uh, schisms or even the word scissors. Like it refers to something that tears or cuts or splits like when it's speaking about an individual it's talking about somebody the kind of person who just kind of comes into a group and immediately divides it maybe you had somebody like that in your small group like you had a real harmonious small group everybody got along and then bob shows up and ruins everything or maybe you have that had that in your family your family was very united and then somebody married somebody that has ruined every family reunion 
Like maybe you know somebody like this. This is the kind of person who is a hammer in search of a nail. And so Paul says, that should not be in the church. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. That word uh, united could be translated come together. Right? It's the same word used in Matthew 4.21 for mending nets, which I think is a really great, great visual of how we do relationships. Right? How we reach unity in relationships because it always requires the mending of broken friendships. Right? Things have been torn apart by disagreement, by unresolved conflict. And there's always somebody in this relational conflict who's just kind of waiting. They're on pause and they're waiting for you to be the bigger man or the bigger woman. They're waiting for you to step forward and show grace and then they're ready to show grace. Why are you waiting? Why not be the one who steps forward and does what Paul says here, mend the nets, mend the brokenness, bring about unity. I think it's a great visual. Like when we submit to the same authority, we can be united. Like we can be on the same page because it's not my page. Like in the midst of a conflict, in the midst of anything, guys, I don't want you on Bobby's page. Why would I want you on my page? I want you on the right page, the same page with Jesus. Like that's how we get on the same page, by living under the authority of the Word of God. That's how we have the same mind and the same judgment. Christian unity, once again, comes from yielding to the same authority to Christ and to His purposes and keeping in mind that Jesus Himself is far more important than anything we could ever disagree about. And so when you have conflict in the church, understand someone somewhere took their eyes off Jesus. That's it. Someone somewhere took their eyes off Jesus. We need to bring our opinions, our ideas, our plans, and our passions in line with the Gospel and under the authority of Christ Himself. And so He is calling for Christian unity here. Not uniformity. He's not calling us to be robots. We're going to be different. That's okay. We should be. We come from different backgrounds, having different experiences. Our testimonies are different, but we're unified around Christ. Like uh, Paul tells the church of Ephesus, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as we, you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. How many gods? One. How many faiths? One. How many baptisms? One. How many churches? One. There is one church, not two, not three, not four like is happening in Corinth. I mean, understand, we, we may have three services, and y'all are the second of three services, but we are one church. Like you, we all have different backgrounds, different experiences, different life stories and testimonies, 
but we are one church. We represent different ethnicities, but we are one church. And we have multiple pastors and elders, but still, we are one church united under Christ alone. Now, the church of Corinth had forgotten that sermon note. Like when Paul preached on this when he was with them, they must not have written that down. They were shuffling around through their notes or something, but they missed it. But So Paul tells them here, verse 11, he says, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people. Somebody's telling on you. Like the word is spreading. I've heard it from Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos. Or I follow Cephas. Or I follow Christ. Now remember we talked about last week that Corinth is having an identity crisis. And as, as a result of their identity crisis, they're very insecure. Like their insecurity and their disunity is a sign that they've forgotten who they are and whose they are. And like a lot of insecure people, they tried to borrow their security from someone else. They tried to borrow security through their support for and loyalty to a strong leader. This is kind of a patron-client arrangement that was common in ancient Greece and is common throughout the world today. Like They would look at that leader and they would think that his achievements were my achievements. His victories were mine. His acclaim was mine because he is honored, because he is wise. Like that kind of lifts me up. My status improves because of my attachment to him. And the church of Corinth went as far as actually naming these different teams Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Christ. I like to think of them as the loyal, the elite, the OG, and the spiritual. All right? Here are the loyal. These are the people who say they follow Paul. Right? Like the church, as they pick teams, some of the people just naturally identify with, gravitate toward the Apostle Paul, which makes perfect sense. After all, he founded the church. Like he was the guy who introduced them to Jesus for the very first time, and then he stayed for 18 months as their pastor. And so, hey, you know what? Solid pick. You know, if this was like Fantasy Apostle League, good pick. You've got a good one there. I mean, this is the guy who writes half of the New Testament. And so, hey, awesome. Those are the loyal. And then there, there, there are the people who are the elite. These are the ones who say, I follow Apollos. See, there were others in Corinth who favored Apollos, which made perfect sense. Like he came in after Paul and he taught. And he was an incredibly solid, like, like gifted communicator like they they follow him because i mean honestly i would apollos is the total package like this guy has it going on he's brilliant schooled in alexandria like the harvard of its day like he was eloquent and eloquent and powerful in his communication and that carried a lot of weight in that day he also had a lot of followers on instagram and his podcast was the number one download. Like, this is the guy you wanted to follow. Like, who could be better than that? Well, I don't know. How about, I don't know, Cephas? Like, these are the OG. Like, these, this is the original gang, right? 
Like you got, you got Cephas or Peter. Here is a guy, Peter, who was the leader of the original 12 disciples. Man, he shows up in Corinth and people take notice of this guy, especially the Jewish community. They like this guy because he was with Jesus for three years. He was an eyewitness to the resurrection. This is the guy who preached at Pentecost and the church was born. I mean, this is the rock, right? Like I have this guy's rookie card. Like he's a big deal. Good choice. I mean, could there be a better choice than Peter? Well, I don't know. How about maybe uh, Jesus? Mic drop, right? Like this is the spiritual group. And by spiritual, I don't mean spiritual. Because there's probably nothing spiritual about these people. They say that they follow Jesus. And before you think that you found your team, you need to understand that Paul doesn't give these guys a trophy. Like he mentions them along with the other three teams as people who are missing the mark because Jesus is not the head of a group. Jesus is the head over all things. All things are under His authority. See, these are people who probably had concluded, you know what? I don't need no pastor. I don't need Paul, and I don't need Peter, and I don't need Apollos. I don't need Timothy. I don't need Silas. I don't need Priscilla or Aquila. I don't need a teacher. I don't need a leader. I don't need a pastor. I have Jesus. Like I have a direct connection to Jesus Himself and He speaks to me in my heart of hearts and tells me everything I need to know. It's awesome. And what's really amazing is He sounds a lot like me. He tends to agree with me on everything. Maybe that's why I like Him so much. You need to understand that we all face the temptation of projecting our own opinions and ideas onto Jesus. And then we use our own personal made-up version of Jesus to support those opinions. That's what this group is most likely doing. Like they're probably, probably what's happening with this group that says, I follow Christ, is that they sound really spiritual, but what they're really doing is they're following their own heart. They're just listening to that inner voice, that voice like of their own conscience or of their own opinion or their own whims or their own lusts. And they're tacking Jesus' name on it. They're taking His name in vain. But they're also, these people are taking Paul's name in vain. And Peter's name in vain. And Apollos' name in vain. Those guys didn't sign on for this. They're probably all equally like appalled by the fact that people are dividing into teams and sticking their names on it. You see, all four groups had this in common. They were following their leaders in a way to exalt themselves. Like they were following these leaders because in doing so, it lifted their own status. Like they cared more about the status of their leader than listening to the the teaching of their leader and becoming more and more like Jesus. And so this critique by Paul, I don't know about you, but it seems really current. I mean, this could be written today, right? Like, I follow whatever. I mean, we, we have completely, as, as, a, as evangelicals, sold out to a celebrity culture. Right? Like, I follow Driscoll. 
I follow Chandler. I follow Piper. I follow Olstein. I follow the Gospel Coalition. I follow this. I follow that. Like we've given completely into this. I mean, through podcasts and Christian broadcasting and conferences and books and con- conferences and, and, and concerts and billboards. It's crazy. Like you ride down the street and you see a billboard with a pastor and his wife, their faces on it, smiling, and they're invited to their church. I mean, that's crazy. Like years ago, my pastor in North Carolina, I would, I would be sitting in my office. I was just a young youth pastor in my twenties, and I would hear him preaching next door, and I would think, is he preaching? Like, why is he preaching? Is he getting ready? It's only Monday or Tuesday. And then I checked in on him one day and realized he was listening to his sermon tape from like the Sunday before, critiquing himself, getting better at like his communication skills. And, and, and I see that a little bit, but I don't know about you. I cannot listen to this guy. Like I hear my voice in my head all the time. I don't want to listen to a podcast by me. Okay. I'm not that downloadable. And this guy thought like he was. And so when I was a young youth pastor, me and my friends, knowing this story, would keep each other in check related to our pride whenever we were kind of getting off course, getting a little full of ourselves, thinking we knew what was going on. One of us would say, sounds like you've been listening to your own tapes. Nowadays, we'd say, sounds like you're listening to your own podcast. Like, are you quoting yourself in a sermon? You have a problem. And I felt like my pastor at the time had a problem. But I want you to understand, it's not just a problem, like these scandals that we face, it's not just a problem when the church goes off the rails. Think about Mars Hill or Willow Creek or insert church scandal here. It's not just a problem when the church goes off the rails. It's already a problem when you identify your church this way. I go to Bobby's church. I don't have a church. Christ has a church. I go to Tim's church. I go to Danny's church. I go to Driscoll's church. I go to Chandler's church. Whatever. It is not our church. Christ is building His church. We just get to be part of that. In fact, that's one reason we share the pulpit here. You may have noticed that every month Pastor Michael preaches Periodically, Pastor Trey will preach or Ben will preach. We don't do that so that you can pick a team, find a patron. I follow Bobby. I follow Michael. I follow Trey. We do that because just like Paul and Apollos and Peter, we're partners in the Gospel. Not patrons. We're partners in the Gospel and we want you to follow Christ and we're pointing to Him and we don't want this church being known as anybody's but His or attached to any personality because that is death to the church. Guys, remember we are one church so don't follow a man and don't follow your own heart. Truly follow Christ. Paul goes on to say, the reason we need to do this is because he asks this question, is Christ divided? I mean, these are all rhetorical questions. The answer is no for all of them. Is Christ divided? Of course not. Was Paul crucified for you? Of course not. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. 
Like Paul gets to the heart of Christian unity. He gets to the secret. Christ is not divided and the church is not divided. Like here's the secret to maintaining Christian unity. I want you to write this down. It's so profound. The secret to maintaining Christian unity is Jesus. I mean, that's the secret, guys. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. When you see disunity, it's because someone has taken their eyes off of Christ. Because, guys, we're one church and we have one head. We have one head. And I wish, oh, I wish that it went without saying, but it doesn't. But only Jesus is Jesus. Like, you know that, right? Only Jesus is Jesus. Only Jesus is a leader worth following completely. Only Jesus is perfect. Only Jesus is the one who will not disappoint or fail you. Only Jesus is Jesus. Sure, read a good Christian book. Listen to some solid podcasts. Like fill your mind with a steady stream of excellent teaching, but evaluate all of them through the lens of Jesus. Don't evaluate Jesus through the lens of your favorite teacher. And so when we hear of scandals like what happened at Mars Hill with Mark Driscoll or with Josh Harris or Bill Hybels or Ravi Zacharias, as Christians, we need to grieve for those leaders, grieve for those churches and ministries, but we should not be derailed because only Jesus is Jesus. Like we have one head. Paul was not crucified for you. And so he doesn't command your greatest loyalty and neither do I. Christ alone should have our primary loyalty. The role of a pastor, any pastor, is to point to Jesus, not themselves. And so guys, this is where we lose people in the church, right? Because of things like church hurt. You grow up in a church or you join one. Maybe it's your first good experience with church and then somebody fails you. Somebody wounds you. Something is said about you. Maybe like, maybe you're the one in the wrong and you don't even recognize it or maybe they're the one in the wrong. Regardless, you step away. Like you step away from the church. But it doesn't always have to just be hurt. Some people get off, get off the rails spiritually because of pastor worship, which is just another form of idolatry. You look to your pastor and you think, you know what? Nobody can even come close to this guy. Like he's got it going on. I hate it when so-and-so speaks because I want pastor so-and-so to speak. It's idolatry or church worship. Like you had an experience growing up at a church and that's the way church should be and nothing else, once again, measures up. Nothing comes close. It's idolatry or maybe the idolatry of nostalgia. Like in the good old days, we used to sing hymns. In the good old days, we used to read from this version of the Bible or we used to do it this way or we had these kind of chairs. I had this kind of experience at a youth retreat and I've never been able to top that and we get off the rail spiritually, or we even leave the church. Like, have you ever been disappointed by a pastor? I know I have. Did you stop going to church because of that? Did you give up on church because of that? How about this? Have you ever been disappointed in a meal? 
Did you stop eating? <laughs> Obviously not. I see you. Okay? I've had a lot of terrible meals. I still haven't skipped one, guys. Like, I know that best one is on the way and I'm going to have it this afternoon. Right? Just because people fail us, we don't give up on church because only Jesus is Jesus. You were not baptized in the name of Bobby or the name of Michael or the name of Paul. So why would any of that ever become your identity? I mean, in baptism, we publicly identify with Jesus. Like we identify with His death. His burial, His resurrection. In baptism, it's as if we're declaring, I don't belong to me anymore. I belong to Jesus. I have died in Him. I have been buried with Him. And I have been raised to live for Him. And so Paul puts it this way, hey, I thank God. And he's not, he's not simply saying like, I'm really glad. He picks his words carefully. I thank God. Like God helped me dodge a bullet here. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say we are baptized in my name. And then whoever he's dictating this to probably says something like, hey, how about Stephanus? And Paul's like, oh yeah, my bad. Okay, I did baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I, don't, I can't remember anybody. Okay, let's move on. Guys, I love this. Like, I think it's great that Paul doesn't know how many people he baptized. He doesn't know because he doesn't care. Like, he cares certainly about baptism. That's part of the Great Commission. He just doesn't care about his ranking. He doesn't care about where he fits on the leaderboard. He's not counting. And as a pastor, I can tell you, pastors who know how many people they've baptized know that number because they're counting it. They have a ledger. It puts them on the board. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What Paul is saying is what we'll talk about this next week as it introduces a new section and puts the capstone on this one. What you win people with is what you win them to. And so in the climax of Paul's exhortation to this first like this first discussion with the church in Corinth, he's saying here is the thing that will hold you together in one mind. Here is what you need to maintain Christian unity. The Gospel. You need the cross. Whatever the struggle, church, whatever you struggle with, stay near the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You that... Uh, our unity, though it's something we need to strive for and fight for, hope for and pray for, it is also a gift from You. Lord, help us to be men and women who place our lives willingly under Your authority and under the authority of Your Word. And in doing so, move toward each other. Lord, help us to be men and women who outdo each other by showing grace who want to be the first to forgive, 
The first uh, to offer that hand of friendship back. Help, help us be those kind of men and women, we pray through Christ. Amen. As we come to this table of communion every week, it is a reminder of the cross. Like this is one way we stay near the cross. It's a reminder that the cross is not something that we believed in way back when and that we graduated from. As if we can graduate from the Gospel. As if we can graduate from Jesus Himself. In fact, this illustration captures it really well. Like There was a time in my life now over 40 years ago where I understood for the first time what God was like. I saw His holiness. I saw something of His goodness and His character. And that was also the first time that I ever knew how sinful I was. I saw something about me and I didn't like it. And that's when the cross made sense. Like when I saw that, when I saw His holiness and I saw the gap between Him and my sin, that's when I understood Jesus was my substitute. He was the one who paid the price for me. But let me ask you, how much... How much about God's character did I know 40 years ago? Oh, not much. And how much did I know of my own sinfulness? Oh, man, I wasn't even scratching the surface. I am way more sinful than I could have ever imagined and way more loved than I could have ever dreamed. And so every day, the cross looms larger and more glorious In fact, we sing about God's love in so many of our songs because of the tension between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Grace is amazing. It's glorious because it is unmerited and undeserved. And so as we stand together and get ready to come to take these elements of communion, I would ask during this song that you come, that you take them, because you need them. You take them back to your seat and we would take them together as a church. Let's stand. Well, church, let me ask you a question. These questions are not rhetorical. So I want to hear back. Whose body was broken for you? Do this in remembrance of Him. And whose blood was poured out for you? Do this in remembrance of Him. Lord Jesus, thank You for the cross 40 years ago and now. And next week and next year and until You come. Thank You that in communion we get to all be teachers and preachers because we're proclaiming Your death until You come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now guys, I don't want you to leave thinking that you can't have uh, Christian heroes. Uh, I know I do. Uh, men and women who uh, point me to Jesus. I have them in this service in the back and in the front up here. One of my heroes uh, in the faith was my Greek professor, Charlie Wenzel. Uh, he was old. I, I, I got to be a student when he taught his very last class he died right before our final exam and I remember 
him showing up in class one day and just b- before the class started, he just opened his notebook and he pulled out a note and he started reading it to us. And it was from a former student of his in Greek who had uh, uh, ended up going into the pastorate, having a great ministry, and then he ended up having an affair and losing his family and losing his church. He'd repented and he wrote to Charlie Wenzel about this. And, and I, I, guys, I can still picture his, his hands like as he held the note, like he was rubbing it as if he was trying to rub those words away, rub that truth away. Like his hands were shaking as he read it to us, but his voice was shaking too. And he said, uh, now maybe you know why I don't care if you ever learn the Greek. I just want you to be men of God. And he dropped to his knees and he started praying. And so did we. And we spent the next hour in prayer that we would be men who persevered to the end. That's my prayer for you, church. That you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame. Now to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God bless you, church.